0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, welcome back to the latest edition of the Nuclecast podcast. Today, I am of course honored to have David Beering as our guest. Now, if you don't know Dave, he is of course an engineer, an engineer among engineers who has spent most of his career working on SATCOM. So that's engineering satellites and communications, making it all work. So if you have... uh, if you've enjoyed your satellite uh, radio or your satellite TV, your dish network, perhaps Dave has had uh, some impact in allowing that to happen. So Dave, welcome uh, welcome to Nuclecast. Thanks for joining us. Now, I know as an engineer, you are, of course, a graduate of Purdue, which is one of the nation's great engineering schools. But I do have one question before we get into the you know the meat and potatoes of Absolutely. our discussion, and and my question is, if if you could go to only a Purdue basketball game or an Indiana basketball game during the era of Larry Bird, which one would you choose?
1: You know that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, in those days, when uh, Larry Bird was playing, there were some other. Pretty well-known guys like Joe Barry Carroll that were playing basketball at Purdue, uh, and uh, in those days, uh, uh, not not long uh, after Larry Bird went through uh, Indiana State and IU, uh, uh, Purdue went to a Final Four. So, uh, so I don't know. I think I'd still have to choose the Purdue side. Uh, that was uh, uh, an amazing time for Indiana basketball in general, both you know Indiana Purdue and. Uh, and then State, of course, out of nowhere. So, uh, uh, what, a, what a great uh, period of time. I, I wasn't really watching Indiana basketball back then, but uh, it sure was. Uh, I was coming into Purdue as a freshman in 1980 uh, when uh, Purdue went to the Final Four. So,
0: well, now, as I was going through your biography, you have an impressive history of working across the defense sector on satellite communications. And as I was thinking about the relevance of SATCOM to sort of the nuclear enterprise, you know, one of the big areas that, that we have to deal with, uh, of course, is nuclear command control communications and being able to operate, you know, the thick line during peace and the thin line, you know, post nuclear detonation. And so as I think about satellite communications, I wonder for somebody who spent their career working satellite communications, how do you see the state of play today in a world in which, you know, the majority of satellites are not, you know, they're not DOD satellites, they're not intelligence community satellites. I mean, we still have the big gold-plated satellites that are up there, but as the war in Ukraine has clearly shown, you know, Elon Musk can can play a critical role. So how, how do you see the state of play as we think through war, the DoD operating in a nuclear environment? You know, what say
1: you? Well, I think, you know, a couple things that are important to see uh, in, in the megatrends of satellite communications today is the uh, emergence and rapid proliferation of these uh, very large constellations of satellites. So you mentioned Elon Musk in, in Ukraine. Uh, that's uh, the Starlink constellation that uh, SpaceX has been uh, rapidly fielding. They're uh, they they they're launching uh, 30, 40 satellites at a time, a couple of times a month. Uh, their launch cadence is, uh, you know, in in prior, if you think about prior uh times in the satellite industry the, the launch cadence of spacex is insane and uh they're uh they, they've already broken their own record this year already uh for uh numbers of launches uh using their uh, their vehicles their their vehicles are very uh reliable and uh they're uh they're reusing large pieces of those vehicles that were once uh, just discarded so it's brought the cost down uh and uh, other constellations like uh, OneWeb, uh, and uh, you know certainly um, uh, Iridium uh, just uh, just upgraded their constellation with uh, next generation. So uh, you know the low Earth orbit constellations are proliferating. Uh, they are seeing a level of investment and innovation that, uh, frankly, the U.S. government can't always keep up with. So. You know, if you look back 25, 30, 40 years ago, the, the DOD and the intelligence community and the U.S. government writ large were were driving the development enterprise, uh, you know, across the board. Uh, you know, the but DOD... Not so anymore. Yeah, not so anymore. They can't, uh, they can't spend as much money as as Google and, and Amazon can put into uh, uh, research and development. And so as a result... Uh, you know, and of course, they can't afford to launch all those systems either. So, uh, so it's sort of the pragmatic approach of this is to see what you can do to take advantage of it. And uh, you know, one of one of the things that is happening is uh, because there are so many satellites that are suddenly making it to orbit. Uh, and you know, one of the things that's another uh, out off outcropping of this uh, this innovation. Uh, revolution that we're in with satellites right now is uh, the small satellite launch platforms are proliferating very rapidly too. So it used to be that, you know, if you wanted to get a payload into low earth orbit or into geo orbit, it would take, uh, you know, fairly substantial investment. And there were only a few options. And now, uh, you've got a whole bunch of different options. And w- one of the more interesting ones is uh, 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 Virgin Orbit, where they've mm-hmm. uh, they've got a 747 that, that they take up to uh, j- lower area of the stratosphere and they launch from there. So they can put 1,000, uh, 1,500 pounds into low earth orbit uh, relatively inexpensively. And so uh, uh, so that makes... That makes that uh, a lot more achievable. And and then, of course, uh, another big trend that's driving uh, a, a lot of opportunity is, you know, once upon a time, not that long ago, uh, you because it was so rare to be able to get something onto orbit, you collected a lot of payloads together and you clustered them that's in right. a satellite. Now it's possible to build satellites that have just a single purpose. And uh, maybe it's an infrared imager or it's a synthetic aperture radar, or it's a a camera or it's a comm package. And uh, so those satellites can be rapidly built. They can be rapidly launched and they can be proliferated pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, so this is something that I think it took a while for the DOD to, to, you know, really grab onto it, but I think they have, and the intelligence community certainly has as well. Um, and and another thing, uh, just one other thing before we go on to anything else, uh, the uh, the proliferation of uh, of, of a, a thing called hosted payloads is another uh, is another big opportunity. So with all the the small and medium sized satellites that are going onto orbit either within these constellations or with uh with other uh activities that are associated uh and with the launch vehicles uh it's possible to negotiate oh you're going to launch 60 satellites into low earth orbit uh why don't i put a navigation package on it or why don't i put uh uh, for instance uh, on a lot of the iridium satellites they have search and rescue packages so so the, you know, governments uh, of other countries, not just the U.S., have negotiated hosted payload opportunities for various types of things that, um, that you know, again, they're very specific applications, but they give you, uh, you, give you a capability that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So, um, so I think that the U.S. government is starting to take advantage of this trend. Uh, and you've probably seen uh, the Space Development Agency, is uh, they're probably the leader, in my opinion, the leader in this trend, and uh, they are uh, launching two separate constellations of satellites, and they're going to do that in multiple re- uh, generations of satellites that they call tranches. And uh, one of the satellite constellations is de- is uh, devoted to tracking, uh, you know, missile launches and and basically maintaining custody. Of things that are that are below it in uh, in, in you know that have been uh, launched and need to be tracked, so they have a tracking layer and then they have a communications layer, and those of course those are linked together, and it makes it possible for them to very rapidly react and, and be aware of what's happening uh, uh, below.
0: So it, your, you know, your description of the trends that we're seeing sort of bring two core questions to mind in terms of really communicating in the midst of conflict. And so my first question is, you know, if, as the private sector has come to dominate the satellite industry, and as we think about, you know, the, the DOD's use of commercial satellites, I wonder how foreign governments via either economic pressure, or via threats you know to those satellite constellations you know you could envision a time in which either Russia or China would threaten to you know to uh, detonate you know nuclear weapon or use some other capabilities maybe jamming or you know an asat weapon that would you know damage or destroy commercial networks and would the commercial sector be susceptible you know, to those kinds of threats and thus say, you know, hey, you know, America, China, you know, we're going to back out of this. And so therefore we won't allow either of you, you know, to use our satellites or, hey, United States, we don't want China taking out our satellites. So therefore, you know, we're going to pull our, you know, contracts with you or whatever it may be do you do you see those kinds of threats as a as a possibility and have they been those types of threats been worked through uh
1: i i a couple thoughts on that Uh, first of all uh the government's a great customer and uh and you know as as most commercial operators will tell you uh, and I, I believe the last number that I saw for uh, fixed satellite services uh, geostationary, that the U.S. government consumes just the DoD uh, in commercial fixed satellite services, something like six gigahertz of capacity. So uh, it's a it, it's a gigantic sum of money to uh, tell the government, I don't want to. Support you anymore and walk away from that. So, so I think I think there's a, a very strong financial incentive for the commercial providers. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think they tailor, tailor a lot of services for uh, for the commercial uh, the commercial industry. Tailors a lot of services for the for the Department of Defense and and specifically uh, one one that jumps to mind. Uh, that's a very fascinating one is uh, the Inmarsat Constellation Uh, that this is a constellation that was the result of basically international treaties uh, and Inmarsat launched a fleet of satellites they're in their they're currently preparing to launch their sixth generation they've been on orbit for a very long time most of these satellites are geostationary and uh, they they support Low frequency satellite communications in L band, which is about one and a half gigahertz, uh, and that is such an important asset uh, that it is required for every vessel above a certain length, anywhere on the water, to have an Inmarsat package on it because it's a global system for search and rescue and for uh, SOS. So, uh, so Inmarsat has cordoned off a chunk of their L-band capacity, which is very precious. I think there's only 30 uh, megahertz of it available in their allocation. And they've uh, they've uh, sectioned off a, a small piece of that. And they sell that uh, as an intel- uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance service. And it's called laser L-band airborne ISR. And, uh, you know, it's a great example of a commercial constellation that has uh, fashioned, uh, a, a portion of their capacity to be very, very tailored to, uh, you know, small UAVs and and uh, people that are operating, you know, with a with a modest data rate requirement in a in a fairly uh, constrained environment.
0: So that brings up a second question in terms of, with that point and something you said earlier about hosted packages. So I spent some time at one of the labs uh, about a year ago, and we were looking at cyber vulnerabilities in particular on satellite systems and hosted packages, you know, whenever you sort of strap extra things on, create additional vulnerabilities. And so as, you know, I wonder about the vulnerabilities of you know, our satellite systems now, because, you know, an adversary may not, you know, blinding the United States in space, because we're space dependent nation, is, is a useful, you know, useful tactic prior to any military action, but you may not want to use, you know, nuclear weapons in space because you'll, you know, you destroy your own stuff. But if you target satellites through jamming, through ASAT, through, you know, cyber attack, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of wondering how the commercial sector is working to ensure that its networks are, you know, safe, and that, you know, you know, nation state adversary can't
1: attack them. So there are two, two things. Uh, let's unwrap what you just said. So two things that are sort of distinct. One is the cyber vulnerabilities of these systems. And the other is the physical vulnerability of the systems. So, you know, the, the genesis of ASATs has made, uh, made it reasonable to assume that if you got into a shooting war with a near peer adversary, that they would start uh, taking out key assets, and oh, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, they've demonstrated the ability to do that, and so that's uh, it stands to reason that that's that's probably in somebody's planning. Uh, so you know, it's impossible to protect a satellite from an ASAT, and the only way to really manage your way through that. Is to either proliferate so many that an ASAT can't, you know, a cluster of ASATS. It costs a lot of money to launch an ASAT, so so you're going to probably have to be a, a grade A state actor to be able to afford an ASAT in the first place. And uh, and how many ASATS do you have in your inventory? Uh, so if you proliferate your your you know spread your risk, uh, dis, uh, or what the DoD refers to as disaggregation, uh, sure. If you're, your uh, your exposure, then it makes it a lot harder uh, to. And, and so now we're not taking out a single Battlestar satellite. We're taking you. know We have to take out uh, hundreds of satellites. And of right. course, uh, you know, as you mentioned, if you take out hundreds of satellites or figure out a way to do that efficiently, if you do that with with kinetic weapons, you could create portions of the Earth's orbit that become unusable because of all the debris. So, uh, so I think. That there's that factor too. That okay, if I do this to my adversary, I'm going to probably end up hurting myself at some point too. So, so I would think that more likely, uh, as opposed to kinetic effects, you're going to probably see people doing things with uh, uh, high high and uh, RF energy or lasers or something like that to disable the satellites as opposed to destroying them. So, uh, but uh, but it's a it's a very interesting conversation that's going on because you know one of the other areas of vulnerability is uh, position navigation and timing and so uh gps and so uh, you know what what do we do if for some reason any reason gps becomes not available to to the u.s forces what are the alternatives that are available and so that's uh that's a conversation if you look at a lot of the, uh, the the chatter that's going on in the in the SBIR world and the research and development in the DoD, there's a lot of discussion about alternative PNT, and that's really what that's all about is uh, how do we reduce our reliance on a single system that is incredibly capable, but uh, if something happened to compromise that, that's a big deal. So. Uh, so the other, the other side of it, uh, the second piece was the cyber piece. And uh, one of the things, one of the trends that uh, as a defense contractor myself, I, I'm following. And uh, obviously anyone who's involved with uh, defense or intelligence is also following. And that's a new thing called the uh, CMMC, the cyber maturity uh, model. And there is a new set of standards that are coming uh, they've been published in various instantiations. There's been a governing body trying to get stood up to manage all of that. But, uh, but the you know the bottom line is that anyone who's supporting the Department of Defense or the intelligence community is going to be held accountable to maintain a posture of cyber awareness and and uh, and you know being able to to prevent and be aware if you had a breach and, uh, you know, be uh, less, much less susceptible to cyber interference. The state actors are quite good at this and they, uh, they devote thousands of people to defensive cyber, but more, more importantly for us, offensive cyber. So uh, so this is something that I don't think, you know, in the days of security wasn't even a thing, you know, no one really thought about it that much. And uh, suddenly, you know, we're we very aware of it. And uh, there was a uh, uh, there was another event speaking of Ukraine that was uh, very uh, deleterious to uh, uh, one of the systems. ViaSat has uh, a geostationary satellite that provides services over that region. And someone hacked into the ground system and figured out a way to turn off all the satellite modems that were supporting uh, the users. So uh, for a period of time, successful and all of those users went off the air. And so uh, and, you know, that was well documented. You can look that up. But uh, it's uh, it's something that is, uh, you know, the commercial systems are going to have to mature to the point where they can they can be uh, you know a lot more solid in that regard.
0: This episode of NuclearCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Switch topics and we've talked about sort of the state of play of, of the satellite sector. But one of the things that's proving really challenging for DoD right now is, you know, as they as the DOD modernizes nuclear command, control, and communication system NC3, just what should that look like? You know, how do you protect it? How do you move from an analog to digital as you build the new infrastructure? you know, the security is obviously paramount. So how do you secure it? And so for you as somebody who is a systems engineer and fo- has spent much of your career focused on systems engineering, as you sort of could, if you could sit back and, you know, uh, offer sage advice for those that, you know, at StratCom and elsewhere in DOD who are trying to work their way through these challenges, you know, what what advice might you give them?
1: Well, it's you know, unfortunately, in the cyber landscape, the the uh, the situation is pretty bleak. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but there's a there's a really fabulous cybersecurity institute here at Purdue called Sirius C E R I A S, and uh, they basically invented uh, cybersecurity way back in the in in the nineties and have been doing it ever since and uh they're tracking the the shortage of cyber professionals in the u.s and it's something in the multiple hundreds of thousands at this point uh the the trade schools and the universities are trying to gear up as quickly as they can but uh what my first piece of advice is grab some talented cybersecurity professionals and figure out a way to keep them there because uh you know the challenge, I, I think, one of the big challenges, uh, as especially as the tech industry tightens with the job market. And I uh, one of the things that uh, I did last year, I was in the middle of uh, a not- for-profit called the Indiana Innovation Institute. and I spent a lot of my time focusing on uniquely, you know, I, I'm thinking, oh, I'm a hypersonics guy. i'll I'll go and talk about hypersonics and technology. and and it ended up being, a lot more about things like workforce and how do we prepare the next generation of engineers and scientists and and STEM professionals to come in and and carry this forward. It's a it's a national security imperative, and uh, so so my my first advice would be, you know, come up with a a, a very strong cyber program that goes into recruiting include... Maturation and also includes uh, job security for those people to uh, to want to stay around. Uh, oftentimes, being involved in the national security mission isn't enough, especially if you've got Google or Amazon offering you twice the money to go over there. So it's uh, it, it's a big challenge, and uh, but the, the cyber side of the business is probably. As important as anything else right now, because of the vulnerabilities.
0: Yeah, that's uh, you know that seems to you know to work you know similar to what I'm hearing. You know that that you know part of the challenge is having the right kinds of folks in the room who understand the problem and therefore can help you design a system. It's it's a lot of folks who um, you know it's just is not their specialization and so they're trying to work their way through how do we design a system you know that we've worked with in an an analog era and now it's a digital era and you know we're not computer scientists so how do we how do we build that system and how do we keep it secure now you mentioned hypersonics and we've we've got a a few minutes left in the show and so i want to turn to hypersonics this is sort of the the new the newest uh, capability that everybody is you know, sort of perplexed about and they're perplexed, you know, what is its implication for strategic stability? You know, what are our adversaries? Cause you know, we, there's some significant evidence to suggest our adversaries, the Russians and the Chinese are ahead of us. And so I, I, you know, I sort of ask you to rub your crystal ball and, you know, tell me what you see the future state of play for hypersonics. Are they conventional? Are they nuclear? Are they some of both? Are they stabilizing or destabilizing? You know, Mike Griffin was on the show, uh, and he, you know, one of the things that he said was that we should have uh, hypersonics that are conventional only for the purpose of long-range conventional strike. That was sort of his his takeaway message. So I'd I'd ask you, you know, how do you see hypersonic flying out, and what would be your sort of vision for them in the future.
1: So, uh, just a, a little history. Uh, back when uh, the Cold War ended. Uh, prior to that time, the U.S. had very active hypersonics research programs. Uh, when the Cold War ended and the and the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, There was, uh, if you remember, there was a a phrase, a term that was used a lot called the peace dividend, and one of the uh, unfortunate uh, uh, victims of the peace dividend was uh, U.S. hypersonics research. Uh, There were only a handful of people who uh, kept at it, and uh, actually a couple of them are here in West Lafayette, but uh, uh, it turns out that... uh, For the most part, the U.S. development hypersonic systems uh, fell to the wayside. So uh, it wasn't until maybe 10 or 15 years ago that this became an interest again. And uh, so my interest in hypersonics came just as an awareness of, uh, hey, this is something that's become an urgent national priority. Uh, we, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, our adversaries are demonstrating our near peer adversaries are demonstrating capabilities that are, uh, that are somewhat, uh, surprising. And, uh, so, so I think I, I agree with Mike Griffin, by the way, that, uh, these weapon systems are going to be, uh, primarily, uh, conventional. I, I don't imagine nuclear hypersonic, uh, capability, uh, uh, but uh, you know, for the most part, I think it's going to be conventional. Uh, we uh, we have a, a long way to go. My biggest my biggest uh, issue, I think, with our current hypersonics development is the cadence of our launch and testing. We need to test a lot more, and uh, that's. Uh, I was at the Purdue uh, Purdue at a hypersonics event uh, a year ago. And Dan Golden spoke at that, and that was his top point on hypersonics, was uh, we need to get to the point where we're, we're, we're testing frequently, maybe once a quarter or once every other month, uh, new capabilities in order to bring these capabilities online. And the, the problem that we've got right now is we don't fly very often, and as a result, you put all of your equities in that in that one test flight. and. What ends up happening as a result of we've got so many equities built in a, a test flight or a small cluster of test flights that we can't afford to take big risks. And so, uh, with, without big risks, we're not going to get breakthroughs. And uh, uh, now I'm thrilled to see, uh, and, and again, I, I spent a good part of last year running all around the state of Indiana uh, at NSWC Crane, at uh, Purdue, at the University of Notre Dame at various other small businesses that are working uh, hypersonics in in our local state ecosystem. And I was very excited to see people who are working novel propulsion technologies, novel materials technologies, uh, materials manipulation technologies, uh, all sorts of uh, 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 ramjet and scramjet technologies are coming around. So, uh, So it's not, I think most people think about these types of systems as rocket fired systems. Sure. In fact, many of them are going to be air breathing systems and, uh, the, the engines, the engine technology, the propulsion technology that beneath those is, is quite innovative and, uh, very esoteric. And, and I, I think as a longer term, by the way, you know, because anytime you've got a, a novel technology like, uh, or a novel area of research or, uh, of, Focus like hypersonics. Um, initially, the focus is weapon systems. Eventually, the focus is going to be commercial. And so, uh, you know, we're going to see a dividend from that. Uh, there are already companies that are starting to look at, you know, these days, supersonic systems uh, that uh, could be commercially viable, and then eventually, hypersonic systems that'll be commercially viable. But the, the materials involved uh you know when you're flying it at, at eight to ten times the speed of sound and you're in the atmosphere this is something that is is a, is a big deal and uh you're dealing with a lot of high temperature uh, a lot of friction uh control surfaces uh you know navigation systems uh all of that is is quite esoteric so uh so i'm i'm excited about it uh you know we had been my, uh, my Navy customer and I had been supporting uh, the U.S. efforts in CENTCOM for 10 years. And uh, two and a half years ago, we made a conscious effort to pivot into hypersonics and uh, ended up spending some time with Mark Lewis and, uh, and Mike White and uh, a lot of the folks who are driving the U.S. agenda on hypersonics today. And, uh, you know, I'm just pleased that we're able to, to uh, be engaged in it and have an impact.
0: So as you look forward to the future of hypersonics, as we sort of end out the show, are you bullish or are you bearish on hypersonics for the United States?
1: I'm bullish. Uh, I think that the, the U.S. has done a great job of, uh, of, of directing investment into uh, appropriate areas that are important to the development of the technologies. I think that the big challenge is going to be as again, as a systems engineer, I think the systems integration of all of these novel things into operational systems that are, that are not only producible, but reproducible and and manufacturable is, is going to be a challenge. And that's really where we need to focus our efforts right now.
0: All right. With that, thanks uh, to Dave Beering for joining the show. Thanks to all of our, listeners out there. Of course, we will look forward to seeing you back on a future Cast. and we'll look forward to having our listeners here for the next episode. So once again, thanks to Dave Beering for joining us on Cast.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.